Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT show, The Nation Talks. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. I can guarantee it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Every single week, I say the same thing. We have exciting guests. We have another, I kid you not, another exciting guest tonight. But I've got a small message to make, if I, if you, if I can crave your indulgence, and it's about the wee ginger dunk. Now, I guess most of you watching this will be familiar with what I mean by the wee ginger dunk. But we're talking about uh, Paul Kavner, who had a stroke, and I believe is hospitalized, as if he and his loved ones didn't have enough to deal with. His titular wee ginger dunk has gone off to the wee ginger dunk place in the sky. Uh, so it's been a double family for Paul and, and his loved ones. So uh, it just so happens that he has a, a, a crowdfunder running just now. And if you're a fan, it's wejingerdug at wordpress.com. You'll find all the details there. Okay. Uh, hopefully this will, will cheer Paul up if he's, if, he's, if he's watching or listening. Thanks for joining us this evening. As I said, we have another great guest. I'm really excited that he's able to be with us this evening. The TN Shuri Show will shortly welcome Robin McAlpin, who's one of our leading thinkers. And boy, does Scotland need thinkers. Now to our guest, the nation talks tonight to Robin McAlpin. How are you, Robin? How are you coping with the pandemic? Oh, I'm afraid to say that I'm, a, I'm an old man. I've got kids aged 11 and 7. It means I didn't have any social life anyway. So bluntly, <laughs> you'd be surprised. I mean, we live out in the countryside, so we've got, you know, space and fields and all that. I didn't feel too enclosed. So it really wasn't, it honestly wasn't too hard for me. I mean, I, I, like I say, if you've got any social life, you don't notice it half as much. So um, I've been coping pretty well, to be honest with you, but it's been very busy for our Commonweal. Yeah, I can imagine. We'll come on to that in a second, if we may. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Because not, not everybody in the audience will know. Many will, but not everybody. Tell us about your background, your family, and your career up until now. Okay, well, I was um, born in an SNP family. My, I was um, six weeks old when I was asleep in my cot, and my mother, who was the head of publicity for the SNP at the time, Isabel Lindsay, was hosting the meeting at which they came up with the uh, Scotland's Oil campaign. So all my early years, if someone said to me, what is, your, what is your early childhood remind you of? The smell of old varnish and town halls. Well, I was sent through the back to do colouring in while the SNP's National Executive Committee, a much less, um, what shall I say, august or, or separate body back in those days, was flashing out the future next door over tea and biscuits. So I grew up in that family. But um, my mum was head of the gradualists. There's a big, for those that don't know, there was a big schism in the SNP in the late 80s, where there was a view that either it will, a Scottish parliament was either viewed as a distraction, uh, uh, an error on the move to independence, or it was seen as a stepping stone. There's a big yeah. debate about it. My mother led the gradualists, and they lost narrowly. And as um, strong devolutionists, mum left the party after 20 years or 30 years. She couldn't, you know, she believed in a Scottish parliament. So I then went to university, did um, English and sociology. I actually went to do music. I wanted to be a composer. Um, and I started off doing music and then discovered it was thoroughly mediocre. So um, kind of shifted on and did English and sociology. So I came out and I was a journalist. And then from there, I wanted to do something for devolution. And the opportunity came up to go and become a press officer for the Labour Party down in um, London, which I did for about a bit over a year in the early Blair years. It was an education, let me tell you. Um, I can 
quite happily never go back to Westminster again in my life, I'm being completely honest with you. So I came back up and cleansed my soul for a couple of years doing environmental policy for a small NGO. But then I spent about um, 12 years of my life, 13 years of my life, as the head of strategy and the head of lobbying for all of university, all of Scotland's universities. So I did spend a few bits and influence government and that's, that's what I did for years. And then eventually I just got to the point. So I'm a, a lefty, I'm a left of um, centre person. But I'm a professional lobbyist as well. And for years, for, for um, 10 years, I'd been editing the Scottish Left Review. And, you know, our readership wasn't big and our spread wasn't great. And when it came right down to it, it was like so many initiatives in the left worthy, but we didn't really pull it off. And I just finally looked myself in the mirror and I said, right, OK, daytime lobbyist, nighttime lefty. What would daytime me say to nighttime me if nighttime me was a client of daytime me? And it was a string of invective. It really was a lot of swear words. Um, we do these things badly in, on the left. We do these things not pretty well in the independence movement, actually. So what I did was I decided we want to see some kind of change in Scotland. We're going to have to bring some professionalism to how we present ideas. So I left, set up the Jimmy Reid Foundation. NDRF came along. NDRF was, we started the Commonweal Project during that to see what could an independent Scotland look like? What would different be? Um, and just straightforwardly, that grew in, out so much that it kind of outgrew the Reed Foundation. So we spun out separately. Um, it also enabled us to be a wholly pro-independence think tank. Um, and that's now just past the, um, oh my goodness, just past the sixth anniversary. Our sixth birthday would be this month. Um, so we started... Congratulations. Uh, oh, um, it's People sent me a work anniversary on LinkedIn. And it's kind of like, when was that a thing? And what are you all doing on LinkedIn anyway? Because I can't see any meaningful purpose for it. That's, of course, what that would have been. I never thought of that. Yeah. So, so uh, just picking up on some of these things, you, you said you'd never like to go back to Westminster again. Mm. What was so awful about doing PR for the Labour Party at Westminster? I mean, I'm going to give the Labour Party a slight break here. It's everybody at Westminster. It's a bloody lot of them. Westminster is a system that is designed like a kind of opium. It draws you in. It sucks you in. You float around this grand old building. You've got all these bars and all this luxury lifestyle. And remember, a lot of these are, are, are um, people who don't live like that normally. And they get drawn into this, this world where it's insiders and it's power and it's drink and it's... And the whole system at Westminster is geared up to waste people's time. I mean, a backbencher at Westminster can spend an entire career and achieve nothing whatsoever. It's just a, it's just a big time suck. Um, for me, there were two things that were particularly difficult. One of which was I went down as a naive 20, I think it was 23. I went down as a naive boy. I thought yeah. the play, this, this was the end of the, um, the Thatcher era the end of the Tory year, 18 years of Tory rule, I thought I was going down to a world filled with bright young things who wanted to make the world a better place. Yeah. And I got down there to discover it was just a bunch of creeps who wanted a future cabinet secretary on their CV so they could get straight into a job in lobbying. So I really didn't like the, the culture of the place. But I'll just be honest, I can remember phoning my mother Christmas 1995. I had just seen Tony Blair at a, a Christmas party for researchers. And I phoned my mum and said, this is all going to go badly wrong. He's a sociopath. And I, I don't think I was wrong. I watched as he moved around the room and the capacity that he had to drain his face of all emotion and move between places, come up to people 
and instantly switch on to being the, the person that he thought they wanted right there and right now. <laughs> I mean, if you stop and you think about the rest of his tenure, yeah, that's what he did. He walked yeah. with a blank, expressionless face until yeah. um, George Bush came along, and then he became exactly what George Bush wanted. It was it was yeah. part of the body of it. So I didn't last much more than a year. And um, honestly, if I was designing a parliament, I would begin with Westminster as an example of how not to do it. Yeah, yeah. So tell us more about Commonweal. Who, who else is in Commonweal? How are you financed? Uh, what, what are you most proud of from, from Commonweal itself? To be quite honest with you, I'm probably just the most proud that we've we've you know fallen apart, or disappeared, or run out of money. Or you know, we six years we're a fundamental part of Scottish society now. Um, and I mean, undoubtedly, our biggest achievement was that we first proposed a Scottish National Investment Bank. We worked our socks off to get that onto the political agenda. It wasn't easy. We didn't get an open door by any manner of means from government, but we kept trying. We kept trying. And in the end, we worked with the Council of Economic Advisors and we worked with the grassroots of the SNP and between them, they made it happen. So, you know, our biggest achievement is getting the Scottish National Investment Bank in, into Scotland. But we are, we, are a, we are a wholly independent think tank. We are entirely funded by small donations from members of the public. We have no big donors. Uh, this is really important for us because what it means is as long as we are doing things that our donors support, um, we can be really flexible. So on more than one occasion, we've just turned our entire policy agenda on the head of a pin when something came up. So this year, um, we had an entire plan. We had the whole year planned out, and then COVID came. And we just dropped everything, all our plans. We realised how important this was going to be. We could see instantly the social and economic ramifications of what was happening. So we dumped everything, and we started to work on a recovery plan. And that's what we've been doing for most of the year. Yeah, yeah. And, and who are your colleagues in Commonweal? Well, I mean, there's uh, the, the head of campaigns is Jonathan Shaffey. He does a wonderful job of getting our stuff out there. Craig Dale's our head of policy. Our head of comms is, um, is Becky Mingus, who's just started with us. And uh, she's really, I've got to say, we were poor at, for example, Instagram. Maybe just a wee bit old. I'm getting a bit old now. So maybe just tacking a little bit old. So we've been doing a bit more effort to use communication channels that reach um, a younger audience and that's working out for us. Yeah. Uh, Sasha Meredith is our head of admin that just keeps everything running. But then of course we've got Source. So we also run a news outlet where um, Sean Bailey, that's a wonderful service with you know two journalists working for him, David and Becca. And Ben Ray does what I think is undoubtedly the single most useful start to your day possible in Scotland, which is the Source Direct Morning email. So that's the full Commonweal team. But to be completely honest with you, the way we work is Scotland isn't overwhelmed with sources which can put good public policy thinking into the public domain. And we're one of the few of them, and we're very responsive to people. So actually, how we largely work is people come to us with ideas and, and, and policy work, or we get senior academics who want to do something more practical in academia, or we get, I mean, we work with lots of people who are in business or in economic development who want to do things that are a bit more radical than they can do in the day job. So that's how we work. We work by providing people with a platform to develop good ideas. And then we, you know, we peer review them and make sure that they stack up and they're solid. And then we put these yeah. out into the world. We, we commission work as well. I mean, Craig, Craig DL has done some absolutely outstanding work throughout COVID. And his two papers on um, public health management and COVID, I mean, 
when we come back to do a review, one of the big questions is how, why did it take so long for the Scottish government to wake up to exactly what were in these reports? And we're going to get a final, we're going to get something that looks like a traffic light system. Um, I wish they would just wake up and listen to what we've been saying. So just echoing the World Health Organization on mass community testing so we can get this virus under control. How easy or difficult do you find it to access the Scottish government? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Scottish government, I mean, I've worked with every administration since uh, John Major in one form or another. And the Scottish government is incredibly centralised. It's very difficult to get access. And to be completely honest with you, I mean, let's just be honest, it doesn't do an awful lot of stuff. If you actually look at its policy agenda, it's pretty empty anyway. Um, there hasn't been much of, of real, I mean, what are the big real achievements? I just get very frustrated with this. But I am going to also say that I was a political lobbyist. It's my trade, it's my field. And I have seldom seen an administration which appears to be, to me, quite so susceptible to commercial lobbying. Um, you, you can get a hearing if you represent a big vested interest but, I mean, you just have to look, and again, I'll just be open, you just have to look at who wasn't contacted over the summer to talk about economic development and recovery programmes. And you know, It's not just Commonweal. Um, all sorts of people across the field of well-being, economics and social care and all sorts of strong and important things to say about Scotland's economy just weren't in that agenda. But, you know, the big rental industries and the big housing industries were. So, no, I mean, I'm just going to be absolutely honest. We work constructively with absolutely anybody. I'll work with a Tory on a subject which we agree about. And I'll tell you, on local democracy, I find Tories who are absolutely on board with what we are saying about that, and we worked with them. I'll work with absolutely anybody towards constructive outcomes. But we've found that the, by far the best engagement that we've managed has been to go through the party rather than through the government. So when we can't get a hearing from ministers and, and we, this is not across the board we do talk to ministers we have had input into a lot of things yeah. but we've had more success getting ideas onto the public agenda in scotland by working through the snp and the party conference than we have by working with the government yeah yeah interesting interesting it's a terrible shame because i had real high hopes for it um i really hoped that when the this administration took over this year happened post ndf in particular i had really hoped that they were going to you know, kind of do something with that outpouring of ideas and excitement and enthusiasm that came out, not just Commonweal, lots and lots of organisations and campaigns were created and there was such a buzz and so much excitement, so much brilliant thinking was created and so many good ideas came out and you really struggled to find much evidence that they were absorbed and that they became the subject of Scottish politics. And I'm afraid that one of my great disappointments about the post-referendum era is how quickly the 2014 referendum was forgotten as a core part of Scotland's politics. We just went back to people in shirts and ties doing what they always did in the ways they always did it. And I'll be absolutely honest with you, I think we're paying the price now. We've, we've got a, we were unresponsive to all the impacts of COVID and far too highly centralised. And I think that was the failure to learn the lessons of what happened in Indiref, that actually, if you just let go a bit, don't grip everything, don't control it, let go a bit. Scotland's filled with people with brilliant ideas. Yeah. Step back and let them step forward sometimes. It, it works, it really how, does. Yeah. How much of that do you think is down to just the simple fact that all organisations ossify over time. 
this mm-hmm. natural phenomenon. Yeah. We've got the human condition. Yeah. We're in place. Uh, we got there through hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're very responsive. But over time, well, you know, not quite so much. And it mm-hmm. sort of tapers off a little bit. And then it's replaced by a sense of alarm about new things and new people. Uh, there's, there's, three reasons this, there's three reasons this happens. Um, the first is that um, uh, just in time, you just, you're surrounded by different people. You come from a campaigning back. When you're in opposition, you're surrounded much more by campaigners, by campaign organisations and so on. Once you get into power, you're targeted by big money interests because that's where they put their efforts. They focus on decision making. So even if you don't intend to, you just suddenly discover that everyone that you ever meet earns £100,000 or more. You know, they just do, but it's because it's the, the, the circles in which you move. Another reason is that as soon as you get into power, there's jobs. Yeah. So parties in opposition are driven by principle and people who, believe, who want to do this. You are sacrificing to put time into this when you're in an opposition campaign. Once you get into power, suddenly there's jobs to go around. It just attracts people who, what can I say, like a salary. So there's, there's a, that happens with all administrations as well. You just get hangers oners start to hang on. But there's a fundamental reason for this, which I swear people, I don't understand why people don't get it. It's, I know it's a truism to say that the thick of it's a documentary. The thick of it's a documentary. What happens above all is that when you come in, you had time and space to think about your agenda, about what you want to achieve and what you want to do. And then you get into, you get a bit of time for chess, thinking in the long game. Then you get into power. And from that point onwards, it's tennis. Every single day of the week, you're batting a ball back over the net, whack, whack, whack. You've got no time to think. You've got no time to take a long view. And what happens is, I don't care how visionary an administration is. Over time, every administration I've ever seen starts to firefight the day's headlines yeah. and without fail. And this is, I, I mean, I'm seriously, you can go back to, you can actually find writing about this in ancient Greece. You can go back to ancient Greece. Everybody knows that the second that you turn your back to fight a fire that's behind you, another fire breaks out in front of you. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows the right thing to do would be to let small fires burn themselves out and move on. Nobody does it. Nobody does it. Everybody knows it. Nobody does it. And that's the problem. Administrations just get mired down in this. Now, there are ways that administrations can refresh themselves in power. But above all, crucially, it involves a degree of trust. You can't do it. It's, it's kind of like you can't read the map and drive the car. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to trust somebody else to read the map. And governments which successfully manage, there's not many of them, but governments which many successfully manage to refresh themselves in power, let go of some of the control of, of the conceptual and thinking space and yeah. let other ideas come in let the freshness into the room somehow and then you select the best of it and you build an agenda from it. But I'm afraid this administration just is very controlling. It just doesn't trust ideas that come from the outside. Um, And it's just not been good at refreshing itself at all. So um, whether it can do it now or not, I'm not awfully hopeful at at the moment. That said, we're engaging with the SNP team that's doing manifesto and policy building work. So a bit of luck, once again, I've got to say, I keep saying this, the best chance for the SNP to refresh itself is its membership. That's, that's, where, that's where the SNP 
can drive things. The culture of the SNP used to be highly democratic and extremely creative. A lot of, it was a grassroots organisation when I was a kid, you know, the big jobs in the SNP and that culture is still in the SNP. It, people need to tap into it. The, the, the membership need to drive the agenda more um, yeah. and stop assuming that everything's covered from above. Yeah, yeah. I, I put that point um, sort of roughly to Ian Blackford, who was our guest a couple of three weeks ago. And he agreed with me that the yes movement needs nurturing because that's the impression I get. I mean, I, I'm nicing to add and repeat, I'm not a member of the SNP, uh, but it seems to me that as I look around, there's a whole bunch of people there who are terribly, terribly highly motivated. What they seem to be lacking is a focus for that. Yeah. Uh, and I've, got, I've got the energy. I'm here to be used, as it were. Uh, I say that in the nicest, broadest way. <laughs> but I'm looking for somebody to say, the, the, this, is, this, is, this is how we've been reinvigorated. This is what we're doing. Uh, let's deal with some questions because they're coming in thick and fast here. Right. Uh, Annette Irving is asking, what is, what should, our, well, she said, what is our timeline for independence? I think perhaps she means what's your thoughts on a timeline for independence? Okay. This is this more than any other subject of discussion in the independence movement brackets except bloody currency, but I suspect we'll come to that, drives me up the wall. Now, this is a really difficult one to see. I am a number one egalitarian. I think everyone's got something to bring to debates, all that kind of stuff. But you've got to imagine what it's like for me. I've spent 25 years in political strategy. It's a trade. You learn it. You learn skills. You learn techniques. You see what works, what doesn't work. You see what other people have done, what they haven't done. Now, on that basis, I can see a clear political strategy that leads us through to independence. Unfortunately for me, for I think for the movement, the, the, the egalitarian nature of the indie movement means that everyone thinks that strategy is just an opinion. And believe me, there are an awful lot of opinions about strategy in Scotland. Now, I'm afraid that I, it's really difficult to say this. I know it sounds kind of elitist or, or down, but that's not true. I could, I could take you 100 of the world's top strategists, give them the same problem of Scottish independence, and the results that you would get back from all of them independently, autonomously, would be much the same. Yeah. It, would, it would come back the same thing. You have to change the balance of the, cal the, balance of the calculation of pain from the other side. So right now, I just don't think the independent movement understands that Boris Johnson loses more by giving ground on independence than he gains. So he doesn't gain any votes. No, no yes voters are saying, ah, now I'll vote Tory. Mm -hmm. But he loses votes because what the, the rump of the Tory vote in Scotland is now old and hyper-unionist. Sure. So they've got more chance of, he's got more chance of losing than, than gaining if he makes a change. So he can stonewall this indefinitely. And one of the things which I think has surprised me a bit is, you know, I, I, my, my mum fought all the way through the 80s for Scottish Parliament. And that was, I'm just trying to remember, remember they stonewalled us for 18 years and that was after we won a referendum. Why anyone thinks they're bound to fold in a year is beyond me. So what you've got to do, um, it's a slightly different position than the 80s because we've got the Scottish Parliament among other things, but what we've got to do is find a, a way, a plan to change the balance of pain such that it is harder for them not to act than to act. Now, uh, more painful for them not to act than to act. Mm -hmm. now, I've explained in some detail how you do this, but very straightforwardly, we just need to take steps sequentially to increase pressure. We're just going to keep increasing the pressure 
on Westminster. And we're going to, I mean, if anyone can sh show me an example of major social change in the world that happened without a bit of civil disobedience, I'd be really interested because I don't think there's been one. I mean, literally, they didn't, you know, people are all talking about a legalistic approach. Can we take them to court? Well, that may be part of it, but, you know, the civil rights movement and anti-apartheid didn't win their victories in the courts. You've got to have a blended approach. So quite what we do, I don't know. Um, well, I do, but what I mean is I, I, there's other ways that you could do it, but the structure of it, they will never give us it. We will never find a lawyer who overturns the government, a judge that overturns the government's right to maintain the power over the constitution. These are no runners. So we've got to do this. It's a political campaign. So to jump back to the question, my best guess, I certainly think we could pull it off in the next term of the Scottish Parliament, but I think it might take two years, three years, to build up the kind of pressure that's going to make them blink and start to waver. And that's only if we start. The thing that bothers me, and I'm just going to say this because I'm, I'm really... I care deeply about independence, and I think we're making an absolute arse off it, if I'm being completely honest. The thing that bothers me is it would have been a hell of a lot easier if we started this six years ago. We effectively stood down the indie campaign, at least as an official entity. We stood down the movement. We let it shift. In fact, more than later, I'm going to say that some people up above were very happy to suppress it and let it fragment and get out of the way and not be a, a you know, not be an alternative power base, I think they saw it as, or not be. So, We've had this situation where the indie movements had nothing to do. And I mean, I've been so active in so many parts of the indie movement. I've talked to so many groups. And the number one question everyone asks is, what do we do? What do we do? Yeah. And I've been saying, well, this is what you would do if you were acting in a concerted way to achieve an outcome. But we're not. And the problem was that the movement was quite heavily split between people who said, we're not doing enough, we've got to do something. And a lot of really well-meaning people who said, you're wrong, you're wrong, it's all in hand, the plans are all in place, there's an independence referendum being announced on. The first time someone told me we were within weeks of an independence referendum was in 2016, and I don't think I've gone six months since without somebody sitting me down and telling me that all the things that I was saying about the need to work on a coordinated strategy towards an outcome were futile because there was an independence referendum coming in a couple of weeks. Now, I just want to be as dogmatic as I can. Scotland has not been within a country mile of an independence referendum in the last six years. Not once, not even nearly. It's all been an illusion. And what it's done is it's given... Too many people, the sense that if we just shut up and wait, it'll sort itself out and it won't. So if you ask me, I think we could be kicking off in May with a campaign, well, depending on where COVID's got to us, but certainly by next summer, assuming we're vaccinated, with a campaign that moves us towards a position where Boris Johnson is struggling to maintain the line and is starting to face all sorts of difficulties and pressures in two or three years. Um, I mean, I haven't got time to go into it in a, in a show of this length, but I also point out that a referendum is only one option. And in fact, it may be worth just explaining this to people. Scotland only needs one thing to be a successful independent country. And you may not like it, but that, that thing is an agreement with the UK. Right? If, that, if we get an agreement with the UK, the rest of the world will recognise as an independent country. That's all we need. Everything else sorts itself out after that. Yeah. Now, everyone is assuming that the only way to get a an agreement with the UK is to have a mutually agreed referendum and then sit down at a negotiating table. Now, that would be ideal. That would be the best way to do it. But I keep pointing out that if we get to the point where we carefully, carefully judge 
that we have exhausted every other avenue and a declaration of universal of unilateral independence was viewed as being a feasible means of finally bouncing them to the negotiating table, that could be used. But if we try to go and become independent without recognition from the UK government, barely any other nation state in the world will officially recognise us. We won't be able to join international bodies. We won't be able to sign international agreements. We won't be able to borrow in international money markets. We will find it much harder to uh, export into international markets. So if we think about it like that, everything, the whole thing is a strategy to bring the UK government to the negotiating table to agree recognition of an independent Scotland. The question then is just what do we need to do to get them to the table? Exactly. And your point is that that has to be pain-driven. They will only I'm telling you. Right, see, there's another thing that nobody gets. I, I, I try to tell this to people all the time. It's the single biggest mistake that civilians, you know, not professional insiders, make about political decisions. You all, I mean, for those of you who are not political insiders, you all think that decisions are made strategically. Are they bollocks? The vast majority of decisions in government are made by a harassed minister with advice from probably a substandard civil servant in an incredibly tight timescale with the absolute certainty that if they get it wrong, they're going to get kicked about the media. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, at least nine times out of ten, if you tell me which option the politician believes will cause them less pain, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Whereas if you tell me which of the two options is better in the long term for Scotland, okay. I still have, will have no idea what decision they make. So the simple answer is, if you want a politician to make a decision, either make the alternative decision more painful or make your decision as, as unpainful and attractive as you possibly can, it's the only thing that ever got a politician to do anything. Okay. Now you, you, you uh, I away all my lobbying tips here. This is this is well, this is me. I'll never really train anybody commercial again. I hope you're, I hope you're listening to this and watching this, folks, and learning because this this is this is a masterclass. Take it at that point, though. I, I take it somewhere that you and the team or you have developed this this pain package for, for, yeah. oh, for well, let me let me let me give you let me give you an example of how I would handle it right so I, I, another couple of rules this is just a universal rule I can tell you this in advance and you'd still make the mistakes so do I every escalation has to be earned because the game that you're playing here the only way that we play this game is that we've got to have a clear majority of the Scottish population on side with us yeah so if you want to see how not to do it look at some of the recent actions by extinction rebellion They've gone from being, as soon as you start dis disrupting commuter trains for yeah. ordinary harassed people trying to get home to their houses, you've escalated too far too fast. Yeah. They lost public opinion by doing exactly that. Everybody who ever ran a campaign thinks that they have earned more collateral for the purpose of escalation than they actually have. It's really difficult. It's hard to tell yourself. Everyone I know thinks it's been going brilliantly. Let's turn the volume up. Of course, everybody you know thinks it because that's people you're hanging out with. So what we proposed was basically that we can open source this, the whole movement can come up with ideas of how we gradually ratchet up the, the pressure, but we need, to, we need to front end that and keep the public on side. And what I suggested was a council of grey beards, but not grey hairs. Um, now I know it's fairly ageist, but I'm sorry, just strategically, 
Yeah. Scotland in Scotland, we have got peace activists, trade unionists, political campaigners, legal figures, lots of people who've been involved over the years on various forms of mild and less mild civil disobedience. Um, the churches, there's, there's great people in the churches who've done things of civil disobedience. We should assemble a council of elders of people that know what they're talking about, who speak with the kind of accent that the public don't find scary or hostile and who look like the kind of sensible, approachable person. We need them to guide us in this. And what we need to be doing is saying, we think we could ratchet up the pressure by X or Y. And we need wiser heads to take a step back and say, our judgment is that's just a little too much, a little too fast, we'll put it down the line. So that's how I would do it. I would handle this by saying, everyone can come up with ideas how we do this. It starts with protest. Mm. straightforward protest and, and, and standard democracy and um, one of the key things that raises pressure and pain is um, really effective satire mocking and humiliation Let, let's just make sure that no government minister comes to Scotland ever again and is okay. able to walk in public without humiliation and it okay. goes all the way up to the point that we take 100,000 people to London and do sit down process which closes all the access to Westminster okay. we've got a long way to go before we do that yeah uh, I, I, I hope we don't get there <laughs> Probably give up before that. We're turning to our questions. Um, let's talk about the Growth Commission. I, I take it you're not a fan. I, I've I've read your uh, I've read your piece in the National back on the 30th of March. Oh yeah. Uh, why are you not a fan of the Growth Commission? Right. I want to try and tell people something that. Things are said about people around about the world, you know, around about the politics, which are primarily inclined to make people view various things, right? I want to separate two important things here. Everyone says, oh, well, he would say that because he's a lefty. Well, first of all, I'm a moderate left of centre. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that insanely radical. I'm not, I'm not calling for bloodshed in the streets. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just social progressive of a fairly standard sort. Um, but that's not my point. My point is that, yes, on our left-right spectrum, the Growth Commission's appalling. It really is. It's 10 years of austerity, and I don't care what anyone says. You can prove it's 10 years of austerity. And it'll be worse than that, because 10 years of austerity will make it 20 years of austerity. Um, but that's not my point. My point is it's not competent. It's not competent. So um, coming at this with my strategic hat on, so if I take my lefty hat on, I put my strategy hat on, right, this system makes it impossible to join the European Union. You cannot join the European Union using a third-party currency from outside the European Union's bloc, simply because you cannot meet their, their requirements to demonstrate that you're in control of your interest in monetary interest rates, rates and monetary policy. Yeah. Right? How they miss this? They claim that oh well, we we spoke to somebody in our working in our gentleman's club who said oh an exemption will be made. Well, will it? Because I don't think Spain's going to give us an exemption to the Aquis Communitaire, which are the rules by which accession countries going to the European Union. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, have you ever heard us on, on what the countries that we will be joining in this radical experiment to have a country without a currency? Because that's what we would be. You know the other countries? There's only four of them. Um, it would, Scotland would join the ranks of Panama, Ecuador, Montenegro and Liechtenstein. That's it. That's the countries around the world who, are not, who don't either have a currency of their own or a formal currency union. Now, above all, my biggest concern was got nothing whatsoever to do with left-rightness. My biggest concern is straightforwardly that 
if you have no currency and no central bank, no monetary policy, and you hit an economic crisis or a financial crisis or you know, all of them combined in the COVID crisis, what do you do? You can't borrow because in crises, money markets freeze up. So I know people don't understand this. I know people don't get monetary policy. But what you are doing is almost, almost, you know, literally, really figuratively, you're going down to London, you're filling bags with sterling and you're coming up and you're using it like it's monopoly money, you know, up here. Um, the bank, the money is the money is being the value of the money is being assured by another government. It's not even your money. Now the problem is, in a, in crises, the money market stopped lending sterling. So where do we get the money from? How do we pay if you get a collapse in tax receipts? How do you pay nurses during a crisis? So what happens is you get an immediate massive liquidity crisis. So people keep saying, "Ah, that's Robin talking about printing money in MMT." No, I'm not. I'm saying that the actual volume of money in the economy would disappear because you'll still be buying things from other imports. That money goes out the country. You just run out of sterling. You run out of the money. And if you run out of the money, you've got to get an emergency loan from somewhere. You've got to get the money from somewhere. So forget quantitative easing. Forget advanced monetary policies. I'm talking about the basic liquidity. Does an economy have enough money circulating inside that economy to pay the bills, to match the liabilities which can take, uh, exist within that economy. Now, yeah. the correct answer to this is you can't. So let's just test this because I'm really getting tired of seeing Andrew Wilson on the TV claiming that, ev- or in the papers, claiming that everybody who isn't him doesn't understand the world. So let me just put it like this. Don't believe me, right? Go and check for yourself. Find out, did Montenegro go to the IMF for an emergency bailout in June this year because it had a liquidity crisis based on the fact that COVID collapsed its tourism industry and it couldn't do a thing about it, or did it not? The correct answer is it did. Now, I'm just going to say to anybody that's listening to this, if someone tells you in an event of a crisis, countries without their currency, their own currency, has to go to the IMF for a bailout, and then within six months... A massive economic crisis causes a currency, a country without its own currency, to have to go to the IMF for a bailout in precisely the manner that we predicted a year and a half ago. Is nobody paying attention yet? Is nobody listening yet? Now, even if you don't believe me, and you should, but even if you don't believe me, ask yourself this Do you want to go through a referendum campaign being compared to Montenegro? And do you want to be reminded that Montenegro had to go for an IMF bailout because it isn't a proper country because it doesn't have a proper currency? That is all we will hear for an entire independence referendum. So why am I prob- why do I have this problem with the Growth Commission? Because it's a dead weight around our neck. It's a liability. As soon as we get into a campaigning mode, it will be eviscerated. The no-sides silence about the Growth Commission tells you everything you need to know. They don't want us to wake up to what's in it. They would love us to go into a referendum on this basis because it's a mess. Now, I can stay on and talk for hours about why I don't like it from a social progress perspective, but we shouldn't even be debating that. We should never have got into a system where an advanced modern economy of the size and scale and integration of Scotland's was considering a day, a single day, without either a formal currency union with somebody, which gives you a central bank and and lender of last resort, and um, and monetary policy capacity, 
or with its own currency. We should never have debated it. So I will say again, my preference in 2014 was for a Scottish currency. But never once did I say that a sterling union was an unviable option. It tied us to the UK banking market. So with my left head, left-minded hat on, it prevented tax reform, it prevented um, banking reform. But it was I never once said it was an unviable currency option for Scotland. I am saying sterlingisation is not sterling unit. It is not a viable currency option for Scotland. We should never have been discussing it. When COVID happened, everyone has, every economist in the world has said, everyone that's commented on it has said Scotland's a perfectly viable country independently so long as it's got its own currency. So we need to listen to the economists. We need to look at the reality and we need to pay attention to what this really means. If we were doing that, this would no longer be a debate. We would have burnt every copy we could ever find and delete every example of on the internet in the desperate hope that we don't have to answer for this charade all the way through whenever we get an independence referendum. Yeah. So I say it again, don't take my word for it. Go and look at the reality. You find me a fifth country that operates its economy without its own currency, and I'm not referring to you know, failed states in, in West Africa. I'm talking about a modern advanced economy. You find me one, I'll put my hand up and say I got it completely wrong. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I know that people have questions and um, we'd love to hear from them. Uh, we've had loads and loads of questions, but many of them you've already dealt with, a whole bunch. Uh, I'll, I'll try and, because we we've only got about less than 20 minutes left, I'll, I'll try and sort of condense them if I can. There's one I can't condense, so I'm just going to put it to you straight. Annette, Annette Irving is saying, uh, do you think Alex Salmon should return I believe he's an excellent strategist, she says. Right, okay. I'm doing my, right, this is difficult for me. I have been, how can I put this? I was taken out in January of last year, 2019, for a coffee at which the whole sorry affair was laid bare to me in great detail. So I know lots of stuff that many of you won't yet know. That was before, I should also say that was before the court case which means there was no legal restriction on me being told all this stuff. So I know an awful lot of stuff that other people don't know. I had to go through the whole of last year with my trap shot. I knew what was going on. I knew it was happening, but I couldn't talk about it and I didn't really want to get involved in it. Um, I'm not being entirely uncritical of Alex Salmond. I think he got completely captured when he was first minister. And, you know, the whole RBS phase was a mistake, I think, for the SNP. However, I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, Alex Salmond is a very clever man, a very, very tactical, um, astute politician. In fact, if I was being completely honest and I was going to say, I, I would judge political ability not according to whether somebody, I agree with somebody or not, but what you do with what you're given. Okay, so it doesn't count if you're Gordon Brown and it's all given to you. It's what you do with what you're given. And what I would say is that on that basis, Scotland's only had two contenders for politician um, of, the, of, the, of the era. And it's Tommy Sheridan and, and Alex Salmond, both of whom had an incredible instinct to work what was a fairly vulnerable position, a fairly, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a dominant position. And they worked it in a way that moved them way forward. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, when it was all happening, that conversation I had with that person in that cafe, I, my immediate snap reaction was that I don't think it would be, it's not ideal for us all to go back. Going backwards never looks great. 
um, my view was that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the best possible look for the movement for an ex-leader to come back, especially if that was on the basis of a crisis, to come back in, say, as leader of the SNP. And I, I, I doubt that Alex Salmond wants to come in and sit about as a backbencher at Hollywood, to be completely honest with you. But let me tell you one thing. He's a very talented man. He's a very capable person. And the idea that we haven't got space for someone that talent in the independence movement is insane. It's, it's crazy. And so whatever happens next, and with all of our views, and I'm telling you, when you get a bit more information, your views will change. But whatever happens next, we don't have so much talent that we can afford to burn the best off it and not make the use of it. So honestly, yeah, we've got to find a way that our talent can have an impact on our movement. And I just don't think that's contentious. Some people have said to me, the way to uh, put all this unhappiness, unpleasantness to bed would be for the uh, uh, would be for Salmon and Sturgeon to shake hands publicly. Do you think that would happen? No, not a chance. But I mean, not a chance. But it's too late. What I don't think people quite understand is this is all going to boil down to one thing. <laughs> no, I, I'm about to cry. But it could boil down to a dozen things, but there's one unavoidable thing, which is that Nicola Sturgeon made various statements to the Scottish Parliament on this, which are now the subject of an inquiry, which if she was found to have misled that Parliament by convention would be a resignation matter. Salmond can't shake his hand out, out of it's not, there's no, there's no mechanism that no. exists for the disputed parties to get together and make that go away. So the problem with this is, well, I mean, I'm trying not to tip my hand in this too much, but hang on. I'm just going to tell you, I think there were things that were done which are outside the scope of what should be happening on the part of people in those positions of power. Let me just put it like that. Okay. And unfortunately, I, I fear that things have been done which cross lines, and I fear that you cannot erase the crossing of those lines. So had it been, I'll be absolutely blunt with you, we now know, you now know, that um, Alex Salmond was seeking arbitration and mediation when this first kicked off internally within the Scottish government, at that point, you, what you described there is, you know, the only solution I would ever suggest to somebody. If you've got warring parties, do everything that you can to get them to kiss and make up, even if it's through gritted teeth. It, it yeah. spiralled way past that. I think that's way, what people past that. But politicians are not like the rest of us. They, they can do these things, I I've seen it elsewhere. So. Yeah, but what I'm saying here, what I'm saying is, even if they did it now, they, I, they won't. They, they oh, it. Even if they did it now, it, 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 it doesn't change certain of the processes which are already in train here. I, I got it. I got it. On a slightly different note, we've had <laughs> Alison Clark is asking, do you think Boris will step down? No. Is, no, is I, think he'll get, I think he'll get the hoof. Yeah. And they, I mean, this, this is almost a cliche in British politics now. The Tories are phenomenally unsentimental about their leaders. As soon as they're a liability, as soon as they're not working, out they go. Yeah. And I think Boris Johnson's done everything for the can. He's a liability now. Yeah. You know, this is, I, I like to think that one thing this has shown is that we're not America, at least. You know, he, Trump's managed to con people with his buffoon act, and at least Trump, at least Johnson doesn't seem to manage it. It's, I think it speaks well of, of, of Britain. It's one of the... The fact that everybody knows he's a Muppet is, I think, one of the things which it makes me a little warmer to Britain just right now. But no, 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 for me, not. He's not. He's a liability. It's a straightforward calculation. If somebody becomes a liability, 
and you aren't excessively sentimental, you ditch them. And when, when do you think the Tories will ditch Boris? I, I whether it whether it's whether it's bloodshed or whether it's a tap in the shoulder. I mean, this is this is one of the things that I'm afraid that we don't have in Scottish politics, which is an elder statesman class who can tap people in the shoulders and say, enough now, that's not right. You know, this is one of the things that we lack. Because the Scottish Parliament is only 20 years old, yeah. we don't have but don't, don't you a, think, a grandee generation that does those sorts of things. I hear you. Uh, but don't you think it, it's actually gone beyond that, uh, i.e. that it, you, your analysis uh, rather supposes that the conditions that existed before exist now, i.e. that the two main parties, Tory and Labour, uh, uh, they have mutually assured destruction. In other words, if I'm the party in power, I don't go as far as abusing the Constitution because I'm very concerned that when you take over power, you'll do that to me. And so therefore we tend to play... Balance chaps. of terror. Balance of terror. Whatever you call it. We're good chaps. But that's what keeps us as good chaps. This is a different bunch of folks, it seems to me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure for a second, with the greatest respect, I'm not sure for a second that Dominic Cummings cares about the Conservative Party. No, I don't think All he wants to do, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, is empty the public purse. Whether the Tories get re-elected again, he could care less about. Mm -hmm. So they'd be captured captured by this group of people. And if that is the case... uh, it doesn't matter how many times somebody taps them on the shoulder, however elder that person is. The fact of the matter is, it's not going to make one whit of a difference. Uh, listen, listen, let's come back to pain here. You watch when it happens. Look at what happened to Corbyn. Massive support in his party. But if you, if you come under constant onslaught from your internal constituency, you cannot survive. It's never happened. You cannot survive. There's this little group that have captured the Tory party, but don't underestimate the extent to which the Tory party is happy to be captured by this group because they share interests. I'll say it again. When their interests diverge, I think you will find the Tory party quite fast to get rid of them. Um, I wouldn't get overhung up on the whole whole gentleman's gentleman's shake between the parties thing. People keep saying to me, that Donald Trump, he's always doing terrible things. I'm saying, yeah, that's right. And, and um, Obama didn't run an extrajudicial international assassination program by drone, which, which contravened every, every single law, international law that you can possibly imagine. So don't, don't believe there was a golden era of politics when it was carried out by gentlemen. There was a golden era of politics when it was covered by gentlemen in the media and didn't blow the whistle on what was going on. But I don't really hold with that idea. But no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I mean, you don't think that Dominic Cummings would bore, dump Boris Johnson the second he, that Boris Johnson is getting in the way of Dominic Cummings' plans. They, they, they will. They will just well, get that, rid of that, that I can't accept. Right. No, they'll, they'll, they'll get rid of them. I'm, I'm taken aback by how poor his performances are. I mean, you really need to be bad to be that bad. I, I keep seeing him... I mean, I've done pre- a lot of interview prep in my life. So sitting somebody down and telling them what's going to come up in an interview. And one of the things yeah. that I find really surprising about Boris Johnson is every question appears to come to him like a fucking surprise. Woo! Where, where, where did that come from? How did you not work out that question was coming? They, they, I always tell people this when I'm doing interview prep. Don't worry about question one because you can always identify what it's going to be and prep for it. You can always do a line. 
don't worry too much about question two because you can pretty well work out what the follow-up question will be. The follow-up question, most of the time you're prepared for. I tell everybody that if you're doing an interview, media, or in front of a committee, giving the evidence to something or whatever, worry about question three. That's when people tend to go, ah, I've got through this, and then they get thrown a, cur- a curveball they weren't ready for and they make a mess of it. Right, so I always say worry about question three. With Boris Johnson, I worry about question one. What, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean COVID? I mean that—that's the thing that I can't get. Forget how rubbish he is. Who the hell is prepping him for this stuff? Because all he's got to do is memorise two sentences. Maybe that's beyond him, though. Maybe because that—that may, that, that may require him to read the two sentences in order to well, understand them. Maybe the thing. But yeah. yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. As I'm saying, I don't get it. Uh, we're rapidly running out of time, but I want to squeeze in a couple more questions, if I may. Um, as part of this pain process, or maybe otherwise, do you think it's advisable for the SNP to leave Westminster? Oh, I don't think... Right, all things are possible if you structure them into a strategy. There is a, I, I don't use the word stunt as a, in a derogatory way. I use this word stunt as a, as a neutral term for yeah. doing something with the purpose of demonstrating something. So you yeah. do it to sh- highlight something. Now, I would not rule out the possibility that you know, a mass permanent walkout of the SNP might be something which is a stunt that's part of the ratchet up campaign and the way across. But but, but be completely honest with you, you know the problem with walking out of parliament? You only get to do it once and then you're out of parliament. It's that thing, you can't can't march out of a meeting to make a point and then crawl back into the meeting and sit at the back. You're either in or out. And to be completely honest, under most circumstances, what I would argue is that the, the impact that you get from walking out is probably less than the ongoing benefit that you have when you have access and also resources. And then you've also got to deal with the problem that there will just be the usual complaints from the other side that your constituents are not being served, people are elected. So I'm not saying it's an impossibility. I'm saying that I think it is maybe not one that I would put quite anywhere near the top of my list. It would be be a a long-term run that. Thanks. I'd like to fit another question. This is one that you may not have expected, but here goes. It's from Kate Leeper, and she's saying uh, on email, uh, if we were to play, presumably, if you were to play devil's advocate for a moment, are there any advantages for Scotland remaining in the union? Of course there are. Of course there are. There are always advantages to everything. It's crazy to imagine that anything's black and white. So if we stay in the union, one way or another, the burden of Scotland managing, we don't have to be worrying about managing borders, we don't have to worry about um, managing military, we don't get distracted with all these things. We do have more access and more weight inside the European Union, inside the, the United Nations and various other places. Um, it certainly solves our problem with intra-UK trade. That is a tricky one for us post-independence because, yeah. frankly, the UK has gone mental and yeah. we've got the option of going mental with them or doing the same thing, and the same, but the same thing then puts a border across the middle of the bloody island. So we've got there's there's various problems like that. 
But the simple answer is that I come from this with both a pragmatic um, head on, practical head, which is they're all massively overwhelmed by the failures that we have to capture Scotland, the the possibility of Scotland's underdevelopment, economic underdevelopment, which results from Westminster. Never mind Westminster's um, corruptions and hatred of the poor, frankly, and um, and it's pathetically undemocratic, non-constitutional parliament. Um, Those outweigh any of those benefits. But also, this is really important. I don't think people quite appreciate how strong my my principled view in this is. I fundamentally believe that no matter who you are, your democracy will get better the closer it is to you. Democracy is like a dog. If you want it to behave, it needs to be with an eye shot. Let it go too far out your eye shot, and democracy does bad things. So you can just do this over and over again. All the countries with the best social outcomes tend to be either quite small or highly decentralised. So everyone says, oh, but Germany's big. Yeah, I know, but it's land that are incredibly powerful and they're heavily devolved. And what it means is the average citizen can hold the parliament to get to account much more effectively than if it's 100 miles away doing in London. And someone asked me, what does an ideal democracy look like? Now, my, if, I, if it ever comes to it and I have to emigrate, I'm going to Iceland. That's, that's, my, that's my escape package. Um, I love Iceland. I love the sheer madness of this crazy little rock in the middle of nowhere, but there's only the population of Edinburgh on it. And yeah. if you go there, you're honestly, they all seem to be in a band or a, or a photographer or something. You've got to, you've got to fill the time. Um, it's a wonderful, I adore Iceland. Okay. And all I can say is twice in 10 years, they overturned a government for corruption through the sheer power of a majority of the population descending on the parliament encircling it with pots and pans and banging them until the government fell. Twice the government was brought down in hours by action from the public. That's a democracy. You can't do that if your parliament's in another country. I love that. I love that. Well, time's almost up. Uh, Thanks very much, Robin. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. I hope the audience has too. We've had loads of questions. We could have uh, gone through more. In, in fact, but we just don't have the time. A big thank you to you. Uh, a big thank you to everyone watching and listening. Also, very importantly, please support India Live. If you like the TNT show, tell us. And tell us what you like, what you don't like. It's your show, The Nation Talks. Thanks again. And thanks, a big thank you to Robin. A big thank you to all of you. Good night, all. <laughs>